Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I am your host, Anna Rasquat-Paz. In each episode of our show, we speak to top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. Today we talk to Thomas Whittaker, professor of psychology at the University of Kentucky and a member of the editorial committee of the Annual Review of Clinical Psychology. Professor Whittaker was the research coordinator for the fourth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, also known as DSM-4. He was also a co-chair of the National Institute of Mental Health and the research planning conference for DSM-5 personality disorders. Professor Whittaker, welcome to our show. Hey, well, thanks a lot. I'm really glad to, to be here and participate in this. Um, so the reason I'm calling you today is that you wrote a paper with Alan Francis, who was the chair of the DSM-4 task force, in which you both tried to draw lessons from your experience, so as to warn those involved in DSM-5 about the potential pitfalls. Yes. Research coordinator for DSM-4, what exactly does this entail? Well, um, that job was primarily working with Alan uh, Francis as the chair, as he said, and Harold Pink as the vice chair. And we developed uh, the methods by which um, DSM-4 was going to be developed. And one of the mandates given to us was to have a much more uh, strongly empirically based nomenclature. So we set up a procedure for that, a three-stage procedure involving uh, literature reviews, um, data reanalyses, and field trials. And in all cases, um, really emphasizing that um, authors um, were not to uh, just try to provide the best results or make the best case for what they're proposing, but to uh, uh, cover all the alternative proposals and major concerns regarding each proposal. So I just sort of monitored that, and then all of that came out in these in that four-volume DSM-4 source book, the results of that. Tell us a bit more about the process and the guidelines. Um, you say in the paper that you adopted a more conservative approach than in earlier editions. How did this translate practically? Well, the... Um, um, it's always been sort of unclear exactly what should be the basis for adding a new diagnosis, for example, or revising a diagnostic criterion set. And certainly was the case in DSM-3 and 3R that it was pretty liberal. Um, Bob Spitzer, I think, uh, in one place uh, stated what the threshold was. And um, it was really, as he said, it was just if a group of clinicians um, said they see a certain condition and they could come up with a reliable criteria set, that it would be included in a diagnostic manual. This, however, led to a lot of very controversial um, proposals, um, um, four of which were actually eventually vetoed by the Board of Trustees of the APA, uh, paraphiliac rapism, uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, sadistic personality disorder, and self-defeating. So there was a mandate for DSM-4 was to have a much more uh, uh, careful and conscientious effort to uh, um, address possible social consequences, costs of including a new diagnosis, and uh, whether or not the proposal actually had empirical support. And and it's, it really was a useful process because there really was an apparent tendency in DSM-4 that um, the uh, people who are, who are appointed to the task force and work groups always have a strong invested interest in their ideas and their proposals, and they want to get them through. And unless you monitor them closely, um, there's a tendency to really try to downplay uh, opposing research and uh, downplaying concerns. Right. So this is what you call in the paper uh, reining in the creativity of the experts, right? 
Yeah, that's correct. Can you give us a few examples of how DSM-4 changed um, clinical psych psychiatry and psychology? Specifically, um, we're talking about the problem of overdiagnosis. I mean, you were really careful, probably more careful than earlier editions, and yet you you came upon um, a few a few problems that you hadn't necessarily anticipated. Yeah, it's really very difficult to anticipate how a revision to criteria that will actually play out in, in practice, um, and. Um, um, or how how it would impact uh, uh, society in the practice of psychiatry and clinical psychology. Um, so uh, whenever you um, have something in a DSM, it provides a tremendous sense of credibility in the view of the public and, and the profession, that their assumption that this is okay, it must be a well-validated condition to have been included. And then when you tinker with diagnostic criteria, you um, sometimes have the, the wording may have such an effect that the prevalence rate may change substantially. And so we actually always, uh, in the field trials, uh, compared the existing uh, criteria sets to the um, proposals. But the DSM-4 field trials were actually very limited. Um, there was actually, I think, only 10 of them, and they're confined to only about a similar number of diagnoses. And so a lot of the uh, uh, ideas that were approved probably weren't field tested as well as they should have and resulted in some rather dramatic increases in, in certain diagnoses. So how does this translate for DSM-5? Um, how, how do you see this coming um, for the next edition that's coming out next year now? Um, do you feel that the field trials are happening, that there's enough vetting happening for the inclusion of new disorders? Well, it's an interesting process. Um, I think one thing that was different, that is different for DSM-5 than for DSM-4 is the um, the Internet uh, uh, process. That really wasn't as strong of a, a factor at the times that we had in DSM-4. And so in one regard, I think the um, vetting uh, of the proposals is in some regards uh, more open in DSM-5 than DSM-4 because they posted them on the Internet and a lot of people could respond to them. A lot more people were aware of them. DSM-4, it was using the old postal mail delivery system where there was like paperback, uh, small mini paperback versions that were uh, freely made available, but you know, you'd have to ask for them, and, and uh, so the communication was much slower. On the other hand, um, um, we had a much more conservative process uh, for the development of proposals and, and for the empirical documentation. In DSM-5, for example, um, they were going to start the field trials without the proposals actually ever even been posted. Um, they were eventually uh, posted, but um, they were planning on getting the field trials started before uh, any, before the posting actually was going to occur, if it was in fact going to, if that was the original intention to actually post them. And once once you start the field trials with the proposals, uh, the train has now left the station, and it's very hard at that point to uh, make any strong major impact on it. Um, so I think the process in DSM-5, in some regards, even though it is on, on the Internet um, and makes it more open, um, uh, even that existence of that may have been actually prompted by the outside critical reviews, by the letter by Alan Francis and Bob Spitzer to the uh, Board of Trustees to actually delay the field trials until it was um, posted. And the field trial itself is far more limited than was the case in DSM-4. DSM-4, we... Um, um, all the proposals had to be compared to DSM-3R criteria sets, and alternative proposals had to be tested, and uh, they had to include uh, validators to determine whether or not 
the revisions uh, were likely to be increased or decreased validity. None of that's being required in DSM-5. DSM-5 field trials confined largely to feasibility um, and inter-rated reliability, um, and they're not collecting data on the DSM-4 criteria sets. So you, you don't really know whether or not a proposal will, will radically change prevalence, whether it improves the validity of the diagnosis or, or perhaps uh, decreases it. It's a far more limited field trial, more like what was done for DSM-3. Examining another problem that people have um, have uh, raised concern about is um, it appears that about 70% of the professionals involved with the making of DSM-5 have ties to the pharmaceutical industry. Is this a concern for you? It's not a concern for me for DSM-5, not the, at least by what I'm aware of. Um, it's my understanding, and, and um, I don't know this for a fact, but this is my understanding that um, the uh, uh, the initially appointed a, a number of persons, and then you discovered um, that a number of them did have strong, let's, I don't know what would be strong, but some degree of financial connection to pharmaceutical industry. It's obvious that the pharmaceutical industry would be highly invested in increasing the number of diagnoses and lowering thresholds. But um, they then implemented a rule that you couldn't get beyond a certain amount of financial uh, connection with the pharmaceutical industry, so these persons had to resign. Um, and so I don't think there is a strong financial connection with respect to group members' decisions with, um, in any pharmaceutical industry. Now, just kind of turning to your, your focus, um, you focus on personality disorders, and you wrote a paper for us um, a couple of years ago where you advocate a new way, a dimensional system of diagnosis. Um, would you be able to explain this system to us and um, explain to us how it's different from the way that it's done now? Well, um, yeah, let me, and, and let me also emphasize that Alan Francis and I probably have a different view on this. Um, and, but both both of those views are actually acknowledged in the paper. But um, yeah, I've actually long advocated for shifting from the categorical model of diagnosis to a, a dimensional model that recognizes that personality disorders are maladaptive, maladaptive variants of general personality traits. And I work from the perspective of the five-factor model, which is certainly the predominant dimensional model of general personality structure developed in psychology. Um, whereas DSM-4 works from a more traditional clinical perspective that uh, there exists these categorically distinct syndromes um, that represent some sort of qualitative um, disease or illness. Um, and in fact, actually, I would say DSM-5 is clearly shifting towards this uh, five-factor dimensional uh, assessment that the proposal for DSM-5 um, is, to, is to include a five-factor model, five broad domains that are closely aligned with the, with the five-factor model of general psychology, and that the, di the disorders themselves will be diagnosed largely by those traits within that model, although um, the work group also will have some um, theoretically-based self-other um, impairments that they feel is, are uh, impairments that are qualitatively distinct from uh, personality traits. I would disagree with that particular aspect of it, um, but outside of that, it's, it's a pretty close shift to what I've been proposing for, uh, uh, excuse me, in the prior and uh, review paper. But Alan Francis, I would say, would, he feels that it's just too radical of a shift to, to actually make that change for DSM-5. Right, and this is a concern that's also been raised. It's a question of looking at personalities in terms of spectrum, and you have you have adaptive traits, and you have um, you have maladaptive traits that you know essentially everybody has um, to a lesser or greater extent. And so the worry that comes up is that if you're going to use a spectrum system, um, the 
threshold for diagnosis is going to be lower and, you know, normality is going to become the exception. Um, how do you respond to that? Well, um, one doesn't know what will happen unless one does the research, and that's where um, where Alan and I would agree. Um, they actually, I'm not sure they're even collecting any data on this themselves. Um, that um, it's my understanding they're not um, comparing um, their current diagnostic system using these traits to um, the DSM-4 criteria sets. So they're not going to be able to tell us uh, to what extent this, this way of diagnosing personality disorders will radically shift uh, the prevalence rate for each disorder. Um, they don't know what the cutoff points will be. Um, they have, like, say, nine, seven traits, let's say, for borderline, and they don't know how many you have to have to get the diagnosis. What they say in the, in the website right now is you have to have all seven, but it's my understanding they're just saying that because they have no basis to say anything else. They won't require all seven because that would be far too restrictive, but how many would it be, three, four, or five? I don't know how they're going to make that decision. Um, and, um, yeah, I would be sympathetic with the concern that that uh, this could have a major dramatic change in how in the prevalence rate of personality disorder diagnosis. And so I, I would wish that they would be collecting the data to, help, to, to justify whatever threshold they use to have some sort of uh, 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 clinical meaningfulness. Right, and it's, it's also, it seems that it would be something difficult to implement for clinicians. I mean, people who are pr practicing um, psychology and psychiatry uh, with patients directly on a daily basis. I mean, they, that would require some training, right? Well, they won't be that familiar with um, the the trade approach to diagnosis than they are with the with the diagnostic criteria sets. But I'm not as worried about that as um, uh, some might be because I don't see the trade approach as being that tremendously difficult. Uh, the traits are rather obvious in terms of what they are, and if you have a specific criteria for each trait, then I don't think clinicians will have that much difficulty with it. But I do agree that. Um, uh, it'll it'll look like quite a different system for them, um, and again, it would be useful to have some sort of piloting of that. But the field trial actually is doing that. They're having um, clinicians apply these traits in a number, I think, four sites, um, and um, they'll have some information about <clears throat> how feasible or how acceptable this approach is to those clinicians. Okay. Um, now, in terms of you know, new diagnoses or new new disorders that will be added to DSM-5, at least being rumored that they will be added to DSM-5, like bereavement, internet addiction. Um, what what do you make of these? Well, I think there is a, a real quality in DSM-5 of, of having quite a large number of new proposals, a, a much more broadening of, of what constitutes a mental disorder, and, and, the, and they're getting a lot of negative publicity over this, again, in part because of the, the explosive sort of Internet communication. But I also feel that um, a lot of the criticism probably is deserved, that they're, um, I'm concerned that they're not doing a good enough job about anticipating problems and, and misapplications. So, for example, I mean, you do have an outstanding uh, paper by Ken Kendler and, and others, including, I think, the chair and vice chair of the, of the task force, which sets forth <clears throat> the empirical support they should have uh, for a new change. And... Um, um, the, well, in a, in a further statement that each proposal must acknowledge and address possible consequences of a new proposal. But if you actually look at the products that are coming out, the work was very tremendously in how well they follow the Kendler outline. So I think for the, if you look at the website, and anybody can go there themselves, and I certainly encourage people to reach their own judgments, but if you go to the website and look at the review for hypersexual disorder, a brand new diagnosis involving your life revolving around sex, um, it would include things like uh, 
uh, quote uh, in addition to porn or um, uh, um, uh, or, or going to strip clubs an excessive amount. Um, the review for that, I think, is outstanding. But then if you look at some of the other reviews, there's next to nothing. There's the review for um, changing the concept of substance dependence to behavioral addiction, and you fold in pathological gambling into that. And once you've done that, you can fold in lots of other things, like Internet addiction and shopping addiction. <clears throat> and the review for that doesn't address any of those concerns. It's just like two sentences, which says that there's a lot of similarities between substance dependence and pathological gambling. And then you have, like, I think some number of 15, 20 citations. And that's it. Um, no discussion at all about the potential consequences. Uh, the bereavement um, isn't really for a new diagnosis. It's really the idea of it, uh, removing the bereavement exclusion criterion. And currently, uh, you don't diagnose somebody with a major depression who's uh, depressed because they lost a, lost a significant loved one. That's been a tradition and long history of psychiatry. Um, and um, the proposal to remove it really comes from the compelling logic that um, what's the difference between uh, the loss of a loved one versus the loss of a job versus the loss of physical health, all those things are depressing. Um, and But we would diagnose a major depressive disorder in response to those losses, why, why make an exception for the loss of a loved one? And I agree with that logic. That's really very compelling logic. Um, but it's quite a fundamental change to suggest to people that you lost all your children or you lost your husband or your wife, um, and it's been now three weeks and you're just still depressed about it, that you're mentally ill. You're mentally ill for, for uh, being so depressed about having lost somebody. And I don't think they really appreciate um, that um, that could lead to a tremendous amount of over-pathologizing over what many people think is an appropriate reaction to, to such a loss. Right. So um, when you talk to clinicians, how do you describe the DSM? What do you tell them this is? Um, what do you what do you tell them this is not? I mean, how how should people understand the DSM? Well, um, yeah, many people, um, I think, can confuse the DSM with something like a periodic table of elements, that it's something that um, is out there in nature and it exists. Um, the DSM is a set of constructs. It's a set of, it's uh, really more of uh, perceptions and hypotheses. Um, it's, it represents the beliefs of the field regarding what would constitute a mental disorder. Um, and in no cases is there ever any laboratory study, uh, laboratory instrument, I should have said, that um, could document that this thing exists independent of our opinions. Um, so that makes it fundamentally very different. Um, I think it's very credible. I think those opinions are largely correct. I think it's correct to think that schizophrenia is a mental disorder, uh, that psychopathy is a mental disorder. Uh, but it is an opinion. And so um, I wouldn't want someone to um, um, reify uh, what the DSM is and, uh, and, and to realize that um, it could be wrong in some cases. Um, it's open to question and debate. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, it's okay. been a pleasure talking to you, Professor Whittaker. I enjoyed it myself. Okay, I'm glad you called me. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquat Paz. Thanks for listening.